Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, more questions than answers about cyber solutions at the Pentagon. What success looks like in the end is an effective real cybersecurity program that protects the industrial base. The data deluge grows at the Office of Personnel Management. The systems are sort of ancient, right? They are what they were when they were established decades ago, and we haven't really invested in the technology sort of in a mod- to make a modern data system out of it. And X-ray vision coming to Veterans Affairs operating rooms. We're right on the cusp of taking that information and superimposing it seamlessly on top of the patient in front of you. And so at that point, you literally have x-ray vision. It's Monday, September 20th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department would have to submit a cost estimate for small businesses to comply with its cybersecurity maturity model certification if a new amendment to this year's defense policy bill becomes law. Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips's amendment to the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act would make the department estimate how many businesses might leave the defense industrial base, too. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency could get more than $800 million more in fiscal 2022 under an amendment the House Homeland Security Committee's passed. That amendment made it on to the $3.5 billion budget reconciliation bill Congress is debating. Under the amendment, $400 million would go to implementation of President Biden's executive order, $100 million for cybersecurity education and training, and $210 million would go to general operations and support for CISA. Ted Kauk is leaving his post as chief data officer at the Department of Agriculture. Billy Mitchell's editor-in-chief of FedScoop. Billy, welcome. Where is he going and what is Ted doing? Sure, Francis. Thanks, as always, for having me on the program. Uh, Ted Kauk is headed to OPM as CDO, and uh, Ted Kauk's one of the more recognized names in the CDO space in the federal government, uh, especially on the civilian side, namely because of his role as the chief of the federal CDO council. So, uh, but on top of that, he's done great work at USDA as the uh, department has undertaken some major IT modernization and initiatives over the past handful of years. Um, and, you know, I think this is a good move for OPM because we've heard a lot recently about OPM's uh, efforts uh, or, or hopes to improve its modernization. Um, and data is a part of that after an independent report from uh, Napa came out uh, over the summer or earlier this year. Uh, that said uh, there, there's a lot that it could be doing, uh, that it should remain an independent agency, but uh, data is part of that, data and analytics. So I think Ted would be a, will be a good hire for the agency. What's the track record that Ted has established as the CDO at USDA that we may look for for markers as he moves to OPM? Yeah, so he he's done quite a lot, and you know, if I were to give him a nickname, I might call him Mister Dashboard because uh, <laughs> one of the stats you hear a lot about is that uh, in his three years as the CDO of USDA, he's created or helped stand up more than 500 dashboards across U- USDA's 29 agencies. Um, and so, you know, in addition to building out, you know, this this CDO CDO role and making it important at the department, he also helps stood stand up. Uh, assistant CDO roles across the USDA uh, for its eight mission areas. So he, it, data and analytics, something he really knows well and has uh, established a culture at USDA that I think will be lasting. And I think it's something that OPM can really take advantage of. You mentioned his other hat as the chair of the CDO council. Do we have any knowledge yet about the impact that his move to OPM might have on that work? 
You know, it's hard to say. I don't think it will. Um, he's only been in that role a little more than a year. And, you know, given all that's been going on with the federal data strategy and the work to stand up a federal data service, and he's kind of been at, at the, the top of that, I think that continuity would be good. Um, like I said, he's only been there a year, so there's still a lot of growing he can do in that role. Um, and, you know, I think as, as he moves over to OPM, which is really the uh, HR agency for the federal government, I think it's an opportunity for him to also expand in that arena. And, and really, uh, you know, one of the, the main areas that the CDO Council has focused on in recent years is that data science workforce element um, training and things like that. So I think there's an opportunity to, for him to work with his colleagues at OPM to expand that on the council as well. All right, we'll explore more on what's ahead for TED and data at OPM later in the program. And Billy Mitchell, you will return later in the program too. Thanks very much for joining me now. Great. Thanks, Francis. Cyber Week is coming October 18th through the 22nd, presented by CyberScoop. It's a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events and lots of top leaders from tech, education, and government, both digitally and in person. You can learn more and register right now at cyberweek.us. Three industry groups want answers about how changes to DOD's cybersecurity maturity model certification could impact businesses. A FedScoop report last week says the department intends to release updates before the end of the year, and the department will inform companies about the changes when they're finished. Gordon Bitko is Senior Vice President of Policy at the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former Chief Information Officer at the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Gordon, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Your group sent a letter along with NDIA and the Professional Services Council suggesting six things the Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks should do about CMMC. I wanted to ask you about a couple of them in particular. One of them, you and your colleagues write, is that harmonizing CMMC and related contractual clauses with existing and future cybersecurity directives is important. What do you mean by harmonizing, Gordon? Welcome. First off, Francis, thanks again for having me on on your new show here. It's great to be with you again. Harmonize, what we really mean is there's been an abundance of cybersecurity directives, both contractual and policy and OMB guidance to agencies. And some of that flows down to industry. Some of it is specific to government, but is going to set practices for industry. They all are generally pointed in the direction of improved risk management for cybersecurity. And everybody agrees that's a good thing but they don't align perfectly. And then industry bears a lot of the burden of that, of figuring out, well, to supply products and services to one agency, we have to do things this way to do them for another agency. It's similar, but it's not exactly the same. So we've got to go through a whole new regulatory regime. That becomes very burdensome. It becomes very expensive, becomes very difficult for companies to keep track of that. And the result is, unfortunately, a lot of the time, instead of really doing effective practical cybersecurity, we have to spend time just ensuring that we're complying with all of these requirements. What fixes that and who should fix that, Gordon? Is that something the department should take the effort to align with these other organizations or should the other organizations align with the Defense Department or should there be some somebody higher up somewhere, maybe at the OMB level, dictating this? In the ideal world, the answer is, I've, I think that there should be somebody higher up. We have a national cyber director now, uh, Mr. Inglis. We've got a federal CISO and the Federal Acquisition Security Council chaired by Chris DeRussia. Uh, I, I think those are, those are entities, those groups, those individuals who should have the responsibility to look across the whole of the government landscape and how do we make it as effective as possible for industry and government 
to work together, to collaborate, to drive innovation, to get new technologies in at the speed that government needs them, but also to, when there are real risks, identify them and, and take appropriate action. Uh, it's going to be a challenge, obviously, because the Department of Defense is fairly far down the path of this particular program, and that's going to drive other agencies to look at how do they how do they align to that as well. So, so that's something where I think centralized engagement from the administration would be really helpful. Strikes me one of the biggest problems here is something that government's terrible at, and that is somebody telling somebody else their baby's ugly. Because at some point in time, you're going to have to choose either we're going to take this one or we're going to take this one over here or we're going to figure out some way to Frankenstein them together. And that the last option doesn't seem to ever really work well in my observation in the government space. So somebody probably will have to tell somebody your thing's not going to be the thing anymore. I think that's right. There's got to be, and the the cyber executive order starts to set some of that guidance and saying CISA and the NIST director and OMB, the federal CIO, the federal CISO, the national cyber director have some of these authorities. There is also though, some carve out language there to allow national security systems and the Department of Defense to do other things as long as they meet the standards that are spelled out in the executive order. But that highlights, Francis, exactly the challenge that there are, that that it is very hard, like you said, to tell somebody that we don't like your baby, and we're going to stop doing it. And, and, and we really do need to find ways to get at that exact point, a, a really good example of why that's important. The Department of Homeland Security right now is got a request for information from industry about their own cybersecurity practices for contractors. And part of their question is, can we use CMMC or should we do something different? Because CMMC maybe doesn't meet their needs exactly. And there are some challenges inherent in government agencies to be effective when it comes to CMMC. And DHS might say, well, there are better ways for us to do that. As long as everybody is making those local decisions for themselves, we end up with, as, as you know, many different agencies, and, and then we're stuck with a very complex landscape. And what you're getting at there, Gordon, strikes me as the core of another one of these suggestions that you and your colleagues are making, and that is clarifying intergovernmental authorities for implementing CMMC and related cybersecurity requirements. There's a confusion, I imagine, on the part of these companies as to exactly which one or ones of these they should comply with to maximize their effectiveness across the government space. Is that what you're getting at with this suggestion, Gordon? That is 100% correct, Francis. The The reality of the cyber executive order and even just CMMC itself spreads out authority and responsibility in different ways, which can lead to confusion. Within DOD, there is uncertainty about is it is it ANS, the acquisition and sustainment folks who have authority, or is it the DOD CIO? just nominated to be John Sherman in the role permanently. And I think it's a great thing that there's a permanent nominee and somebody who I have as much respect for as, as John. I think that that's great. But the, the, the rule for CMMC allows the CIO to make exceptions to CMMC decisions being made by acquisition and sustainment. So it, it creates confusion. And then you add in, again, the cyber executive order talks about the director of, of NSA as the person responsible for national security systems having authority. Again, it becomes a very complex landscape and very hard to figure out what are the real risks? How do we manage those effectively? What do we do in order to ensure that we're protecting all this critical information across the landscape of, of products and services that the government relies on? Either in uh, the relation to these two suggestions that we talked about or in relation to all six of these, we have this letter linked, by the way, at fedscoop.com, 
What does success look like, Gordon? What does a good outcome look like both for the Defense Department and for the companies that want to serve the Defense Department? I think that, that that's a great question and really kind of cuts to the chase, Francis. That, that what, what success looks like in the end is an effective real cybersecurity program that protects the industrial base. It's some, some decision or decisions. As I know, uh, when FedScoop spoke to Ellen Lord last week, she said, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We've got to get moving forward on these issues. The threats are real. Nobody argues with that. So I think success looks like real program that's in place that people understand and understand it's going to evolve everybody everybody sees the need for that but we've got to move forward and we've got to have clarity on where the decisions are coming from about what what are going to be the key components of the program how are other agencies going to be involved where are those deconfliction points going to lie otherwise there there's still so much uncertainty and i'll, I'll link it to, to uh, what we don't want to see happen is What's happened a lot with with Section 889, which is the exclusion order for Huawei and ZTE. And again, everybody understands the risk, the threat's real, no, no denying that. But each individual agency has been applying for waivers at their own pace and with their own scope and defining who are the affected entities. And that just causes confusion. And the result, again, in that, that case is instead of focusing on real practical cybersecurity, people have to worry about compliance. So success looks like real cybersecurity. It looks like doing the things that truly harden the defense industrial base, which means getting the program going forward, not spending another year arguing about the rule and the implementation of the rule and a review and the implementation of the findings of the review. And, and that's unfortunately, I'm concerned that that's the path we're headed down. And, and you know, highlighting that, you can see the NDAA has got some proposed amendments looking at What's the cost of this to small business? Well, again, it's the same, all these same sort of questions that we've been talking about, Francis, that are driving Congress to think, hey, this is potentially concerning because it's going to affect the ability of small businesses to, to work with the department. Gordon Bitco, thanks very much as always. Great to talk to you again, my friend. Francis, thank you for having me back. You can find a link to that letter at fedscoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, X-Ray Vision is coming to operating rooms inside the Department of Veterans Affairs. You'll learn how that's happening later in the program. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod on Twitter. Ted Kalk's move to the Office of Personnel Management next month underscores the importance of data in the agency's future. The director of OPM, Kieran Ahuja, says that future will include recommendations the National Academy of Public Administration made in a report about OPM that Congress mandated. Terry Girton is president and CEO of NAPA. She's former deputy assistant secretary for policy at the Labor Department and a former SESer at the Department of Defense. Terry, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. The recommendations that NAPA made as a result of what Congress mandated included lots of references to data and how OPM could use data better. What are some of those that Ted might step into when he goes to OPM next month, Terry? Welcome. Well, Francis, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, and this is such an important piece of our recommendations because at the end of the day, what we are all about with these suggestions to OPM is getting them to be more um, focused on a risk management approach to human capital and less on specific compliance. And in order to do that, they really need to capitalize on all of the data that they have so that they can use that data to identify places where more intentional management will help and not worry so much about the places where compliance is already working well and where um, 
They don't need to keep checking those boxes. So when Ted joins, really getting a handle on all the different sources of human capital data that OPM has on the federal civil service, figuring out how to make all of those stovepipe channels of data connect so that you can get a picture of how the whole system is working. Use that to think forward about how to strategically target areas of the workforce and then think about how the whole system is working from a performance perspective will allow them to be much more strategic and much more focused on the places where they can take action and make a difference and less about checking the boxes on compliance worksheets. I would imagine one of the big challenges that Ted will have, too, is that uh, regarding the stovepipes that you referenced a moment ago, Terry, they're not just stovepipes of data within OPM. They're stovepipes of data that all the agencies are feeding to. Hopefully, agencies are feeding this data to OPM, right? Right. Well, the systems are sort of ancient, right? They are what they were when they were established decades ago, and we haven't really invested in the technology sort of in a mod to make a modern data system out of it. And so that's a key piece of what we've suggested as well, which is they really need a comprehensive IT investment strategy that allows them to um, build modern systems and sustain modern systems that are integrated, customer focused, really um, you know, focused on managing human capital for the future. It would be perfectly reasonable in my mind, Terry, if you and your colleagues took a victory lap after reading this passage from Billy Mitchell's story at fedscoop.com. OPM is building Napa's recommendations into its fiscal 22 to 26 four-year strategic plan. I mean, that, that's that got to be the pinnacle of it for people that do what you do, isn't it? That's right. For us public administration nerds, getting your recommendations <laughs> built into a strategic plan and a budget um, are really the, the most important implementation steps we could ask for. Yeah, everybody follows the money. Uh, what of those do you think, the, the recommendations you made separate from the data, are the most important ones to look for in that strategic review, both for the agency itself, for OPM itself, and for the other agencies, human capital offices that will depend on the growth and maturation of, of OPM for their successes? Well, you know, our report makes 23 separate recommendations. So um, I would not expect OPM to tackle all 23 in the first six months of that strategic plan. Right? That's a wise idea, Terry. <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. You know, anybody that's done um, organizational change knows that it takes a long time. And so um, while we haven't seen the plan yet, I would expect that they've probably broken it into sort of two sets, a tactical set of recommendations and a strategic set. And that tactical level, sort of near term, should involve resolving the basic staffing and resource shortfalls, um, working with Congress to take actions on those recommendations that we made that would help resolve issues around OPM's authority and the qualifications of their leadership. And this thing that we were just talking about, this IT strategic plan, right? They really need that in order to move forward. And then the second level is really the longer term actions that will help them address culture change, um, the delegation of certain authorities to agencies, right? So that they don't have to check everything and be the approver of every single um, personnel policy that's going on out there, implementing data-informed policymaking also, as we talked about, and then really creating a customer-focused mindset and developing this risk management approach to compliance. So it's a four-year plan. I'd expect to see them take it in chunks, 
doing the the tactical things early that help them build toward um, culture change. There's only one thing you said in there that I'm concerned a little bit about as, a, as an observer of this stuff, Terry, and that is OPM as the approver of policies. I understand the, the reason that agencies want to have that authority delegated to them, but at what point do we risk having 24 different policies among the CFO Act agencies for some particular thing? Or is that not such a big deal? Well, we already have lots of different personnel systems out there, right? So one of the things that, if you'll recall, way back before the OPM report, uh, NAPA issued its No Time to Wait papers. And the very first and underlying principle in all of those is that human capital policy exists to support agency missions. And the CFO acts have have vastly different kinds of missions. They need tremendously different kinds of people and staffs. And so at the bottom line of of talent management is this idea that you have to allow the flexibility the agencies need to recruit the kinds of people they need for their unique missions. And so you can do that if you um, are generally adhering to merit principles, if you have common uh, performance goals and metrics. Um, if you're doing this risk management, but you really need to give the agencies the flexibility to find the right kinds of people. And so I think as OPM begins to think more strategically about talent management and less about compliance with all of the rules and regulations, compliance is still important, please don't misunderstand, but you can leverage compliance to be more flexible and strategic. And that's where we really want this whole modernization and transformation approach to go a uh, quick final thought we haven't talked about the uh the revolving working capital fund that guy cavallo wants to build at opm what difference will that make compared to appropriated funds uh to get money uh, or to, excuse me to get um, it upgrades done at opm terry well you know fundamentally a working capital fund allows an agency to manage it its investments and its sustainment of capital assets. And so in this case, we're talking about IT. And it does that by charging a fee to its customers or its clients for those services that allow it to recover its costs. And so it is a way to leverage appropriations um, for operating expenses and use it to think strategically, not just about buying the systems, but sustaining them and replacing them. And so in order to make that work, they need really that solid IT investment strategy. They need authority from Congress to do it, which they're still working on, but I think uh, seems probable. And then they've got to work with their customers, whoever is paying into the fund, to get agreements on rates and performance metrics. So that over time, everybody is part of the system that creates that revolving fund that allows them to continue the investment processes um, with the funds that they already have appropriated. So it's a different kind of strategic thinking about IT and not just buying it, but sustaining it and modernizing it over time. Terry Gurton, thanks very much as always. Great to have you on the program. Delighted to be here, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about Ted Kalk moving to the Office of Personnel Management at fedscoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Tuesday's program, the Small Business Administration's lessons learned from its pandemic pivot. Chief Technology Officer Sanjay Gupta is a 2021 FedScoop 50 nominee. He's on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast debuts at 4 o'clock Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. 
The Department of Veterans Affairs will give its care providers x-ray vision soon. 5G wireless technology will drive that capability. Thomas Osborne is director of the VA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation. In an exclusive interview with FedScoop editor-in-chief Billy Mitchell, Osborne says one part of the strategy is data, and a second part is access to care. We'll start with data. So in the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, most of the country has been doing a great job with electronic health records in collecting data. Now, the VA's had a head start on that. The VA's had its own electronic health care, electronic health system way before anybody else. But there's been since, you know, since the VA sort of led that charge, other uh, healthcare systems have begun to do that, uh, partly because of meaningful use, which was a, which was a um, sort of a government mandate, uh, and other uh, governmental policies. And so the first step was to get people on this system to make things more efficient and to collect data. But the real, the real thing that's important here is data in and of itself is only so useful. And what we want to do is we want to take this path from data to information and from information to knowledge and ultimately wisdom. Instead of just having, you know, numbers in a row in a file, we, we can take that pathway and then we can, you know, pull different elements together with insight and understand what that data means for an individual, how we can predict what might happen so we can prevent it, how we can get ahead and be proactive about care. And so we can address problems before they happen. And that is the pathway that we want to take to transform illness to wellness. And so the more data we have and the more we're able to thoughtfully uh, sort of address problems with data-informed decision-making, the better opportunity that not only clinicians but administrators and everyone else will have to provide the best possible care for individuals. And so data is huge. And we've been collecting tons of data in healthcare. But we need to tra- make that transition. And so when you talk, uh, and this ties into the other part you're talking about, like what does 5G do? So uh, it, 4G comes before 5G, as you'd expect. And so 4G is sort of like, you know, the typical, the traditional way in the past that we've had wireless connectivity uh, or one of the most common ones. And the four, going to 4G, 5G is the next step up. And so if you imagine being able to move some data in the past, uh, you could move some amount of data and you make an analogy, call that a dirt road, right? So you're moving stuff along a pathway and you can move a certain amount of data and there's a threshold, there's a sort of a regulator, a certain amount of data at a certain amount of speed. And so let's call that a, you know, a bike on a dirt path. 5G is orders of magnitude different in how much data you can move and how fast you can move it. And so it's like moving from that dirt path to a five lane superhighway mm. without traffic. And so then you really have opportunities that just wouldn't have come up before. Uh, not only can you have more data and be able to process more data, take it from one place like the point of care and bring it to another place efficiently and fast, like a supercomputer or uh, a cloud-based analytics platform 
where that information can be processed and turned into knowledge and wisdom and then brought back to the point of care so you can have real-time clinical decision support. And the more elements you bring in to that system, the better you are uh, empowered to come up with the most precise, uh, actionable, and uh, personalized care. And so, you know, instead of just having a, a static variable, you can have multiple different variables that all make a difference. And then you can bring in other elements from the record. You can bring in wearable data. You can bring in social determinants of health. You can bring in genomics and imaging data. And when you're able to incorporate all those things, then you can get really precise, personalized care uh, in a timely way and start to be very proactive and uh, precise about how you, you treat people. And so this infrastructure, this 5G infrastructure, allows you to do that in ways that just wouldn't otherwise be possible. And that's sort of high level. But if you think about the stuff we're doing with augmented reality, so uh, that's just a, you know, that's a, a small part of what we've been talking about because that's mostly revolving around imaging data. But I think it's a good example because imaging data, that's, that's a lot of information. And so if you want to look at someone's CT or MRI scan, there's hundreds of images. Each one of those is many megabytes in size. And you put that together and to move that from place to place to transform two-dimensional images into three dimensions. So you can look at someone in a very intuitive human way and process that information so it's able to be manipulated real time. That takes a lot of processing, a lot of bandwidth. And with traditional infrastructure, it just wouldn't be possible. You'd have processing times that are too slow, uh, too laborious, lag time, jitter. And so not only now can we use this infrastructure to do real intuitive understanding of three-dimensional complex images for pre-surgical planning, but what's really exciting is we can take that same information. I mean, imagine taking someone's CT scan and transforming it into a three-dimensional hologram of their body. So you see them as they are, but you can actually go through it and see exactly where the abnormality is that you want to address. Yeah. So that's where we are now. And we're right on the cusp of taking that information and superimposing it seamlessly on top of the patient in front of you. And so at that point, you literally have x-ray vision. We've been able to do that in the lab successfully. Uh, and so when you have x-ray vision, all kinds of opportunities open up, not only for just like understanding what's going on with the person in front of you, and quite frankly, literacy, uh, you know, for everybody involved, trainees and patients to understand what's going on. But now you can see exactly where that thing is and the opportunity for us to have safer, more effective procedures, because we can go and find the most safest path without, uh, you know, having to worry about hitting things that you don't want to hit, like vessels and nerves, and going to the most precise and efficient way, uh, you increase safety, decrease operative time, and overall outcomes. Uh, that is just one of the exciting things. And that just starts to scratch the surface 
with what that kind of infrastructure can provide. Thomas Osborne's director of the VA's National Center for Collaborative Healthcare Innovation, speaking exclusively to FedScoop editor-in-chief Billy Mitchell. You can read more about the innovations at VA at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more. The CTO at the Small Business Administration, Sanjay Gupta, is on the show tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose, saying thanks very much for listening.